Hey, good morning. No, good to have you. I don't know if Troy's already given you a welcome, but I'm not sure another one wouldn't go and miss. If this thing collapses in the middle, I've got to tighten it up. Someone remind me after the service, I need to tighten the lectern up. Someone, someone keeps leaning on it and jumping on it, I'm sure, Ralph, and it's getting really loose. Hey, do you know what? We don't have a clock. And I left my watch at home. Where are we? 11 o'clock. A couple of hours will do us wanted. Okay? Hey, don't look so serious. It could be worse. It could be three, couldn't it? <laughs> okay. Hey, well, uh, let's begin. Hey, look, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, dust storms or sandstorms. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining they're quite common in, in the middle part of Australia. Are they? Yeah. I mean, they occur when there's massive gusts of wind, as you know, and just gathers up small particles of dust. And they're only tiny. But the issue is that there's so many of them moving at quarter pace that ultimately you can have a scenario like this. Seriously. And cause major disaster. Galatians is a sandstorm of epic proportions. And it's not just mere small particles that are moving. It's at the very bedrock of Judaism that's moved. What's moved? What's moved? What stone is moved in Galatians that causes utter havoc? The The law, which is the central fabric of Judaism. It's moved and it causes an immense stir. And so what what we're asking is after the dust clouds have settled in Galatia, when the trashing of Mosaic law is done with, when the grace has triumphed, What is left? What's left in Christianity? What does it leave behind? After the storm, what are you left with? What do you see? Tragedy. Yes, tragedy and something greater. Someone have a guess. What is left on the landscape after this dust storm? Something more. You're left with the cross. Let me show you. You're left with the cross. That's what remains. I want to suggest, friends, the cross is the one constant of the entire Bible. In verse 14, we're going to come back to 11 later, but verse 14, Paul comes to this heart of Christianity. May I never boast, may I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's quintessential Christianity. It's at the very center of it. Let me show you. It's at the very center of Judaism, though no one ever saw it. We read Isaiah 53, but it started way back further than that. Genesis. We know the first proto-evangelium, the very first mention of the gospel. Where is it? Probably already there by now. It's not quite there. Where is it? The very first mention of the cross. Does anybody know? Genesis 12, it is three, isn't it? That is three, isn't it? Yes. Genesis says, look, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, who? Jesus. Will crush your head. How? What implement crushes Satan? The cross. The cross. From the very first book of the Bible, right through the Testaments. And let me show you this. It not only is its central and foundational to Judaism, though no one saw it, 
It transcends the testaments. Revelation 5, verse 9. Here's the singing in, the new, in, in, in heaven. And here's, here's what they're singing. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seal because you, who? Jesus, had done what? What was done to him? Slain. The cross was done to him. You see, the cross of Christ transcends time. From the very beginning in Genesis to the very end in Revelation, the cross figures. Hey, let me, let me tell you, we often been talking about what should be the content of our songs, good, sound Christian theology. What is the soundest, if that's the word, Christian theological point? Jesus and his cross. What should be the heart of the majority of the songs that we sing? The cross of Christ, the cross of Christ, where we certainly in heaven be singing about Jesus and his cross. We may not have communion to remember him, but we won't have communion, I'm certain, because we'll have what to remind us of the cross? Jesus himself. And what will he bear on his body? The scars of the cross. We will never forget this is the bedrock of heaven. It will always be at the forefront of our experience there. And so Paul, after the dust of Galatians is settled, after the law has been done away with, we're left with the cross. Here's our heading then as we begin Galatians. The heading for the conclusion message is leaving the rat race. Leaving the rat race. And here's our subheading. The cross of Jesus exits us out of the rat, rat race of trying to be good enough for God. Sorry, it's a bit long-winded. I, I could just deny a shorter way of saying it. The cross of Jesus exits us out of the rat race of trying to be good enough for God. So Paul concludes his letter. He begins verse 11. See what large letters are used to write to you with my own hand. It's a bizarre thing to say. You're writing someone a letter, and you say, I wrote this with my own hand. Well, of course you did. Except it wasn't always like that back then. How were letters normally written in antiquity? Someone wrote it for you. Yes. Yeah. Who wrote Peter's gospel? Who wrote Peter's gospel? <coughs> it wasn't Peter. Hey, theology students, you guys should know this. Those in the theology course, who wrote Peter's gospel? Mark. Thank you. Okay, it was typical for someone, usually a scribe or a friend or an associate. And so, and so Paul's letter has been written for him. But finally, at the end of his letter, he adds his own imprint. It was common that you'd finish the letter. Just, you know, it proves that you've written it, obviously. And it gave you a chance to add a bit of emphasis somewhere. And so Paul, Paul puts his bidding at the end. It's with large letters. This is extra bold font. Okay? And so whatever follows now is of primary importance. If you read nothing else of the letter of Galatians, you have to read the bold font. So you'll get the message of Revelation. So verse 14 is that font. Listen to this. May I never, I've quoted it already, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. As we've already said, this is the watermark of Galatians. It's on every page. 
is the watermark of the whole Bible. And so having spent all his time moving the stone of Moses, and it was a heavy stone, an immovable one, but nevertheless, Paul moves the stone of Moses, moves salvation away from law, and points it at Jesus. And what Paul is telling us now is, is, is that the, 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 the leverage of that, what moves the stone? The leverage for moving this stone that's immovable is the cross. Why this summing up statement is so essential. What moves the stone? The cross, the only thing that could deal a death blow to law, to its demands, to what it expects of us. And so this is central to Paul. It's central in Galatians. It's central if you look right through Paul. Let me give you one example. Corinth. What was it in Corinth that Paul says he wanted to be known above every other thing? The answer's there. I resolved to know amongst you nothing. Nothing was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So we're going to ask two or three why questions. If you think I'm just repeating myself, it may well be. <laughs> or what is hopefully is we're moving, we're moving forward and that we're digging deeper with each repetition of the why question this morning. So initially now then, why? What is it about the cross that has got Paul so hung up on it, so passionate about it. What is it? And we're going to explore that together now. Verse 12. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So these are the Judaizers. They're the ones who are trying to put law onto these Gentile Christians. They're possibly converts of types, although it's questionable. They've taken on Jesus, but they've still kept one foot where? In the law. Now, what they're trying to do to these Galatians is that they're trying to impose that on them. Why are they trying to impose that on them? What, what do you think the rationale is of verse 12? Why are they trying to impose this law on these Galatians? It tells you the second sentence of verse 12. Yeah, and that simply means is that, is that look, they're getting harassed by the good Jews. You know, you, you, you've, you've taken on this Jesus, you've given up Moses. So they're trying to prove they haven't given up Moses. And in fact, they're so passionate about Moses still, along with Jesus, that what are they doing to these Galatians? Yeah, they're making them into their converts. It's, it's a way of avoiding persecution. We haven't really left Moses. We're just doing Moses and some Jesus. And so verse 13, not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. What did every Jew who was honest with himself know about his relationship to the law? What did every honest Jew know about his relationship to the law? You failed. You couldn't keep it. And so Paul's saying, look, they know they can't keep it. And yet they're pushing this unkeepable, this unsurmountable building block onto the Gentiles. They want you to be circumcised so they may boast about your flesh. It's a continuation of verse 12. So they can now say to the Jewish neighbors, look, we haven't really left Moses. Look at these converts, circumcised and all, obeying law. They do Jesus, but they still obey law. And so it's a way of boasting that they are continuing in their Judaism 
and Paul will have none of it. Listen to this, verse 14. May I never boast. In contrast, 12 and 13, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants nothing to do with bringing people to Moses or rising to the ranks of Judaism. He's turned his back on that. What does he call Judaism in Philippians? It's astonishing. What does Paul, chapter 3, how does he refer to Judaism? Dung! And if you think that's an exaggeration in, in the King James Version, the original word in Greek means excrement. Okay, listen to this, Philippians 3. If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. But whatever was to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them rubbish and count them but poo. Not having a righteousness on my own that comes from the Lord, but that is through faith in Christ. Look, Paul had played those games, but he is no longer foolishly seeking righteousness with God through Judaism. He's no longer seeking to excel. He doesn't care any longer about proving himself, about rising through the ranks. He's done that, been there. Remember when he's on the Damascus Road? Why was Paul on the Damascus Road? He wasn't going on a holiday. What was he doing? He's persecuting the church. Not having next one, please. I think it is. Look, he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's people. Why was he doing this? Why was he so passionate about killing Christians? Yeah, he wants to excel. He wants to please the hierarchy. He wants to prove his pedigree, his zealousness. He was once one that persecuted Jesus, but now, verse 14 of Galatians, he has become single-mindedly focused on the cross. May I never boast, may I never have any other thing in my life that's a focus for me other than Jesus. And he began, and it's the wonder of it, he began on the very Damascus road where we saw the height of his zealousy for Jesus. Chapter 9, the very road where we see that his, his most zealous expression of Judaism, killing apostates, okay? Uh, we see his conversion. Look, a light from heaven flashed around him. The risen Jesus appears, and he bows to him in humble submission. And it's that conversion of Paul that moves him from absolute love and infatuation with Moses and law. Listen to this again in Philippians 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. A chief Jew. But it was that experience in Damascus and in verse 7, listen to this, whatever was to my profit, everything that he gained. And Paul, had a, you see, some of us haven't got very far in what we do. Look, if you start bodybuilding, and if you give up after a couple of weeks... You haven't lost a lot, have you? Okay? But if you're Mr. Universe, my past career, obviously, okay? If you're Mr. Universe, and then you stop, completely stop, for whatever reason, it's a lot. You've given up everything you've gained, okay? Well, Paul is the Mr. Universe of Moses. 
and yet he considers it is lost. He gives it up. And so the second why question, why? Why would he give up everything he'd worked so hard to gain? And remember, he had everything to lose. He was Mr. Universe. Why would Paul give all that up? Why doesn't he just add Jesus? That's the safest thing to do. I'll do a bit of my Moses, and I'll just do a bit of Jesus. Why does he give it up? Why does he call it poo? Why the, the major cataclysmic shift? Because he loves yeah, he does love Jesus. Anything else? It's only by grace. You cannot hold the two together. Listen to this. This is what he's saying. He said, through Jesus and his cross, okay, what has happened? And this is why the two cannot exist simultaneously. What has happened through the cross? Yeah, through, the, through which, he, he's going to only boast in the cross now, no longer in Moses, because through the cross, the world has been crucified to me. Hello, matey. And I to the world. Through the cross, okay, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What, what world is Paul? This is a difficult one, and I'm going to argue this for you a bit more clearly just now. But have a guess. What world has been crucified to Paul? Yes. Okay. That is exactly right, Morag. Morag, Bron. Well, you see the next to each other. Oh, you said it. I saw your lips moving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Your lips moving. You spoke. Seriously. You know, I'll tell you, age is creeping up on me, George. Really. This is the early signs of <laughs> being, needing help. Okay. Yes, I should have gone to Specsavers. What an amazing advert for Specsavers, eh? Specsavers. Look, here's what a commentator, McKnight, writes. Paul knew that he had died to the world and that the world had died to him through the cross. The world was connected to the law of Moses. That's his world. And therefore, the entire enterprise was done with. You see, the Greek word cosmos, next one, please. Is we, we, you know, it's a common word. Most non-Greek speakers know it. Look, cosmos, there it is in Greek there. Obviously, it means world, but like every word in every language, when we use a word... That word and its meaning isn't necessarily based on its etymology in what its root meaning is. The way we understand the, what the word means when we speak in it is ultimately revealed by what? The context. Look, I may say, look, I'm a, someone's had a haircut here. This, I, was, I thought it was going to be legal. Look, Rob's had a haircut, okay? Now, Rob's coming, he's had a haircut. That's not quite Rob. But look, you know, imagine it is. Look, and like, you, know, you look at him and go, wow, cool, okay? Now, are you really saying he look, he's looking or feeling cold? You meaning? I know it's, it's exaggeration, extreme exaggeration, hyperbole and everything. But, but, but what are you meaning? He looks a bit trendy. And can you see? And, and, and Jewish, not Jewish language, Greek language is no different. Words have to have their meaning developed or directed by context. And so, yes, this is a general word for, for world, cosmos, but the context, what is the context of Galatians? What world is it? 
It's a Jewish word. Look, chapter 3, give you one example. Next one, please. Look, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. That's the world that Paul is. So can you see what's happened to Paul? Paul, because of Jesus' cross, has gotten off the world of Judaism, off the, the world of the rat race. I'm calling it the rat race because it's exactly what it was. Okay, Paul has got off the rat race of Judaism, of trying to get to the top, of trying to excel, in trying to put other people down, in trying to be the best, in thinking of yourself as the best. Remember how, what was the thing that Jesus scolded the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for? Because they thought they were the best. They thought they'd arrived. Paul was on that journey, but the cross has, has delivered him from that. He's given that up, and he's now entered into the rest that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 11. When Jesus says these words in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. What was he talking about? What was he talking about? He wasn't talking about the guy who just had a, you know, been following him around the countryside and needed a break. What was he talking about? He was talking about the law. He was talking about the law and its application. For my yoke is easy. In comparison to Moses, and my burden is light. Paul has entered that. He's stepped into it. That's why he's now at complete rest. That's, no, that's why he no longer needs Moses for justification. That's why he's completely abandoned in Philippians 3.9. And I've found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes through Moses, but that which is through faith. And having found that, or rather, that finding him out, verse 14 of our text, Galatians, tells us through the cross, the world of Moses has been crucified to me and I to the world of Moses. Okay, how? Next one. How has Paul escaped the world of Moses? Is in the text. How has he escaped it? There was only one way of escaping Moses, and Paul has done it. What is the only way? Look, one when when of my engineering days, I think there's a picture there. Look, you have a solution, you have a problem. There's only one way of working out what's wrong. You have to take it apart. Get your hands dirty, take it apart. This is, we're going to get our hands dirty here. We want to know. We don't want to just know the engine makes it drive. That's not enough. What makes it drive? What is it about the cross that delivers Paul from the law. Let me ask you about this. What is the only exit strategy from Judaism, from the law, from doing good to please God? What is the only exit route? Dying. It is grace, but it's essentially dying. That's what Romans 7 is about. There's only one way you can escape sin and law. That's through death. And so when you look at it, and here's a commentator, my belief in the cross of Christ includes not only the realization that he died for me to rescue me from judgment under the law of God, but also the constant awareness that I must reckon myself to have died with him. What happened in Jesus' cross to Paul? He died. 
You see, so when he talks about through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, it's not just Jesus' death he's envisaging. The way he escapes Judaism, the reason he's got no further interest in it, look, if you die, I mean, we know what happened to the Egyptian pharaohs. When they died, what did they leave in their tombs? They took all their treasure with them. Okay, okay, but... What value was that treasure to them? When the pharaohs died, how much interest did they have in that treasure? Zero. They left that world never to have any further place in it. If Paul belongs to the world of Moses, and in Jesus he dies, what relationship, what interest does Paul have in the world of Judaism? Nothing. Not a single iota of interest. We do realize that. That's what death does. Death, why are we so hurt in death? Because the person who dies no longer can express the slightest interest in us. They're not there. What the cross has done for Paul, this is why Moses is, is dead. I've been saying that for weeks. This is why Moses is out. Because we have in Christ died to that world and no longer have any access or interest in it. The cross of Jesus exits us from the race of trying to be good enough for God. You see, Judaism, like every other religion out there, is, is the epitome of trying to do good to please God. And Paul has died to it. Verse 15. 15 confirms you. Look, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. You look, he's saying simply this. Look, let me tell you the truth. I don't care if you're a Jew, and I don't care if you're a Gentile. It does nothing for you in your standing before God. That's a huge thing for Paul to say in a time when Judaism was still popular. The temple was still uh, possibly uh, in action. Okay? Paul said, I don't care you're a Jew. It means nothing spiritually. I don't care you're a gentle. That means nothing either. What does mean something? Yes, because what does the cross of Christ do? Is it there? Yeah. What does the cross of Christ do? Yeah. It makes a new creation. Okay? It makes a new creation. There's only one way you can get a new creation. Back in England, uh, the motherland, uh, you know, the, pre the pre-conviction times, okay? okay. Ba back in England, we used to be members of, well, when we were living in Wales, because we lived so close to the border of England, we were members of the English Chester Zoo. It's, it's, a, it's the best zoo in the country, but an annual membership, so we'd be there most weeks. In one section, they had the butterfly house. It's my favorite part in the zoo. Guess why? No, 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 it wasn't that yet. You're going, bro? Because it was warm. It was tropical conditions. In midwinter, you got your hats and scarves and gloves, and you walk in there, and it's like, wow. I'd love to live in a country that felt like that. Yeah, I could have thought I was moving to a country that felt like that. And then I landed up in Adelaide. Okay? And you have extended, prolonged winters, you see. Uh, but I'm kind of, you know, you were just like getting used to it. But look, they had a butterfly house, and look, you know, a caterpillar turns into a chrysalis, this cocoon. Before he gets to that, okay, what happens here? 
doesn't grow. Then before it grows, what happens in the chrysalis? It dies. Enzymes are released into that cocoon, into that chrysalis, and it completely disintegrates the caterpillar. Death, 100% death occurs. It's incredible. In fact, if you cut open that chrysalis in the midway process, you just have oozing out, gush. Not life, not wings, not beauty, not design, gush. Death, and from that death emerges. It's incredible, isn't it? Why do you think we see this through nature? What has God been telling us all through nature? That the way to life is death. The way out of Judaism, the way out of the rat race of thinking that we can somehow do something that pleases God and opens the doors to heaven is through death. You see, you see this new creation can only occur when death has taken place. Here's what McKnight writes. What Paul is doing here is contrasting two systems. The system, the circumcision system of Moses and the uncircumcision of the Gentile world. He insists it does not matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. What matters now is that there is no national circle into which one must enter into, into to join the people of God. What matters now is that you're a part of God's new people, God's new creation, God's new humanity. What the point he's trying to make there is, is that this new creation, and I think we sometimes see this because we, we're so individualistic, aren't we, in the Western world? It's me, it's my castle, it's me, it's my family. That's not how life in the Middle East works. If you're having a meal, you don't just feed your kids. Who do you feed? <laughs> The extended family or the street. It, it was much more community. And when we think of new creation, we may think, of, you know, I've become a new creation. It's not really individual. The new creation is really the church. You see, from the death and the ashes of Judaism that Paul has died to, what emerges? Life. The new creation, what is it? The church, no longer with national identity, no longer with physical symbols, no longer attached to Moses, emerges a new creation that, like the butterfly, almost looks nothing like the original. Emerges a church made up of, in Galatians 3, listen to this, in this church, there is neither Jew nor Greek. You think your Judaism is good? It's got no value, says Paul. Listen to this. There is neither new Jew nor Greek. In fact, there's neither slave nor free. Neither male nor female. I know ladies have a prominent place, rightly so, in modern life. But back then, back then, of nil of value. In these places, neither male nor female, for now, in the new creation, in the church, born out of the ashes of the fire of Judaism, <coughs> is the one church of Christ. You're all one in Christ Jesus, the body of Christ. Galatians 6.15, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. What counts is that we belong to the new creation called the church. So here's my challenge to you as I bring some application in these closing moments. 
Do you belong to the church? I'm not talking about this building, although we use it for, use it for church purposes. We're not even talking about membership of this church. We're talking about the universal, invisible church of Jesus. Do you belong to the church? There is salvation in no other place. Neither in Judaism, nor in paganism, nor in any other thing. Salvation is only found in the body of Christ. Do you belong to the church? Have you surrendered your heart to Jesus? Welcomed him in? Asked for his forgiveness? Made him the master of your destiny? That action, done sincerely, transitions, transitions us through the cross, the death of the cross, from the world of trying to please God out by ourselves and always failing to a world where God is always <laughs> pleased with us. It's a whole new world. Are you in Jesus' church? Secondly... <coughs> Secondly, have we gotten off, and this is how we know we're in Jesus' church, have we gotten off the rat race of trying to be good enough for God? Have we, as Christians, I'm talking to the church now, have we gotten off that road? It is all too easy to come into Jesus, Jesus Christ, into the church, but not having our mind, having, not having really died, not having really turned our backs on our world. And so we come into faith and we carry some remnants of our past life. And, and we almost feel in Christianity, it's performance-based. That my standing with God is related to how well I'm doing and how well my spiritual life is and, and how well I'm managing to say no to sin. And some of we feel, don't we, that if we haven't lived a good life, Christian life, and look, I'm not bemoaning living a good Christian life. If you come to this church long enough, you'll hear the importance of that. But in the context of Galatians, have we got out of that cycle where we're treating our relationship with Jesus on performance? Look, Matthew 11, we quoted it earlier. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Okay, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, I want to deliver you from the rat race of feeling that you have to perform for my love. That you have to do well to be in good standing with me. That you have to fit the bill to receive my benefits. No, no, it's why Paul Paul is so passionate about the cross. May I never boast in the, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because through it the world of trying to perform for God has been crucified to me. Let me put it like this. I want you to imagine this illustration. You wake up one morning, okay? It's, you've woken up late. It's, you, you've burnt your breakfast. It's miserable outside. Your car won't start. You get it going. You turn up to work late. Okay, you're cussing under your breath. You're desperate to say something terrible. Your boss has a go at you. Now you, you, just, you just vent your frustration out on him. How dare he? You haven't even been late once in the last six months. And here he is. You feel terrible about yourself. You hardly can have a quiet time at lunchtime. You get through the end of the day. You get home, and then you just sink into your bed. 
and the thought of prayer and, and thinking of God crosses your mind, and you know that you're the last person God wants to hear from that day. How dare you even think of reading his word or seeking him in prayer, and you crash on your pillow. There's another guy. He wakes up one morning, and the sun is shining. He jumps into his car. His suit's ironed. His car starts. He has an accelerated journey to work. His boss gives him a promotion. He's there at lunchtime with his Bible in front of all his mates. He goes home. He's feeling absolutely fabulous. He falls on his knees, has an, ex has an extended time of prayer, reads five instead of the two chapters of the church marathon that week, okay, and, and prays his heart out to God and falls into bed content and at peace. Which of those illustrations is inappropriate? Which one of those illustrations is inappropriate? Both. Both. No matter what kind of day you've had, whether great or terrible, whether sinful or unsinful, or whether, whether progression in your faith or backwards step in your faith, you have every right at every moment to come before Jesus. It's never merit-based, ever. Don't ever feel, Christian, that you do not belong here because of the week you've had in the world. Your presence and hearing before God is anchored not in performance you died to that world it's anchored in the cross of Jesus and that paves the way for you to come to Jesus this morning this afternoon tonight tomorrow next week and the week after and the week after on the basis of his death and your co death with him. Christianity is not performance based. Christian, have you gotten off the rat race of your former life? The message of Galatians, I'm going to finish now. The message of Galatians, whether you've, you've caught the, the gist of the nine weeks we've had on it, it's simply this, that in Jesus we have died to the rat race of the world, whether that's Judaism, paganism, or whatever world we may have been, we're dead to it. Through his cross, we're born, resurrected into a world of constants. Constants of a, of a proximity to Jesus and openness to him that never fluctuates. Sin and all. Yes, I said that. Sin and all. If our sin could really change your standing before Jesus, then that thing is a waste of time. Do you see? Sin and all. Don't ever let sin keep you from Jesus, from church, from your quiet time, from your peace. Because we're never to boast in anything, says Paul, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which 
the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross of Jesus exits us out of the rat race of trying to be good enough for God. Let's pray. We'll pray and the musicians will lead us after the prayer. Father, we bow. 